Romans chapter 9. You ever notice that life isn't fair? No, never. Okay, stupid question, I'm sorry. But I was thinking about that Friday. Friday, Ann and I adopted a dog. That's Rosie. It's been two years since we've had a dog, and literally, we're in our late 50s. This is the longest either one of us have been without a dog in our lives. So, so it, it, it was time. And it turns out there's a program in Hutch at, at the, that works alongside the prison in Hutchinson uh, where inmates are allowed to adopt dogs temporarily to have them with them in their cells and train them under the coaching of this, this partner organization, this partner nonprofit. And when the dogs graduate from the training program, they're adopted out and the inmates get another dog to train. It's good for the inmates, it's obviously great for the dogs. So Anne applied to, to, to get a dog or, or to be part of this program months ago. We didn't hear anything. And then last week we got a phone call. Hey, we've got a dog we think would be perfect for you guys. So Friday we end up with these, these two delightful ladies in our living room who are in their 70s at least. They could have been in their 80s that, that have been doing this program for 30-some years. And they're just chattering, telling us how they got started and everyone they work with and all the places that the dogs go and how they really want to place a dog in Florida because that would be an excuse for a road trip. And <laughs> so in the course of this conversation, one of them starts coughing and, you know, the kind of cough that, that you're not sure if it's going to stop. And she says, it's not COVID, it's not COVID, it's not COVID. She says, I'm sorry, I have COPD. And she says, it's strange because I never smoked. And her friend says, yeah, she never smoked a day in her life. But my husband, he's been smoking two packs a day for 50-some years. He has perfectly healthy lungs, but she has COPD. Isn't that strange? And I found myself thinking, I don't know if it's strange, but it's kind of unfair. And, and then I felt bad for thinking that because it's not like I want her husband to, to have lung problems either. My mom was a smoker and died of lung cancer. And I, don't, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. On the other hand, here's this sweet woman struggling to catch her breath who just wants to rescue dogs and give them good homes. So I found myself thinking, life is so not fair. But we knew that, didn't we? I mean, what did we hear the whole time we were growing up? Mom, life's not fair. Or, you know, Mom, that's not fair. Life's not fair. Get used to it. That was my mom. We heard it from our parents, we teach it to our kids. We teach it to our grandkids just in case their parents aren't doing their job. <laughs> if you're looking for a life that's fair, find a different universe because it isn't this one. Unfairness is wired into the fabric of creation. Wind blows in Kansas, the Vikings break your heart, life isn't fair. These are just immutable truths. So that's a point that Paul is gonna explore this morning. It's a point he's gonna underline for us. Life isn't fair. But the takeaway for us this morning, the takeaway as we get into chapter 9 together, the application of that truth, life isn't fair, might not be what you expect. Romans 9. Left off last week in verse 13. Paul, Paul's been carrying on a dialogue of sorts with his readers in Rome. He's been doing that like the whole letter. Because he's writing to people he's never met in a church he's never visited. He wants them, he's falling all over himself to, to make sure that they hear his heart. 
So he's writing this letter in kind of a back-and-forth style. He says, here's what I'm saying, and you might think I mean this, but I don't mean this, I mean that. And which you might assume means that this is also true, but it isn't. This is what's true. As we pick up where we left off in verse 13, Paul's in the middle of one of those back-and-forths. It started at the end of chapter 8. Chapter 8, Paul makes this big declarative statement. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Big, bold promise. And then the beginning of chapter 9, he says, Now I know you're wondering, can you really believe that? You're asking yourselves, didn't God make a bunch of promises to Israel that I don't see him really keeping? I know you're going to ask this, Paul said at the top of chapter 9. So he says, let me give you an answer. And the answer is there's Israel, and then there's Israel. That was last week. That was verses 6 through 13. There's physical, biological Israel, if you will. And then there's spiritual, believing, faithful Israel. God, Paul told us last week, is going to keep his promises. He's going to keep them to spiritual Israel. All the promises that God made to Abraham. You're going to have this much land, and you're going to have this many descendants. And there's going to be a kingdom, and the Messiah is going to bring forth the kingdom, and the kingdom is going to be a blessing to the whole planet. Yeah, God made those promises, and those promises are unconditional. No, Israel cannot forfeit them. What's happening, the reason that you're not seeing them right now, is that those promises don't apply to absolutely everyone descended from Abraham. How does that make sense? Well, think about it, Paul said. They don't apply to the descendants of Ishmael. Abraham's first son. They don't apply to the descendants of Esau, Jacob's twin. So they don't apply to all the descendants of Abraham. They don't even apply to all of the descendants of Jacob. Because it's not about being related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's about believing like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of that was last week. Just by way of review or, or quick onboard if you're visiting with us this morning. But Paul knows that point. There's Israel and then there's Israel. He knows that that declaration, that assertion, is going to raise yet another question. There's Israel and there's Israel? How is that not unfair? How is that not unholy, unrighteous, un-something? I mean, isn't it wrong for God to treat some people one way and some people another way? Now, Paul knows that that's going to be the next question from his readers in Rome maybe from his readers in Wichita. So verse 14, he goes ahead and asks it. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God being unfair? Verse 14, Paul asks the question. He knows it's on his readers' minds. And then immediately, same verse, he goes ahead and answers it. Certainly not. Absolutely not. Heaven forbid. In the strongest possible language, Paul says, no way. He's really sure that's his answer. And he's going to explain why in a moment. Actually, he's going to explain why for the rest of the chapter. But before we get into his answer, let's pause and just make sure that we appreciate the enormity of the question. Paul just got done saying, yeah, God did choose Isaac, not Ishmael. God did choose Jacob, not Esau. He just got done saying that, and he's getting ready to say, Yes, during this season of history, God is choosing the Gentiles, not Israel, as the recipients of his grace. And that shouldn't come as a galloping shock. Jesus said that would happen. 
Matthew 21, 43, Jesus told the chief priests and the elders, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. It's going to be given to the Gentiles who will bear the fruit that you were supposed to, Jesus said. Jesus said it was going to happen. Paul said, it's happening. We're in the middle of it. When we get to chapter 11, Paul is going to say that Israel has been blinded in part, blinded in large part, he means. Today, in, in Paul's day and in our day, in Paul's day and for the last 2,000 years, very few Jewish people have entered the kingdom of God. Because after Israel hardened its heart against Jesus, God blinded their eyes to Jesus. Which brings us back to the question that Paul's anticipating. Chapter 9, verse 14. How is that fair? God sitting up in heaven deciding, I'm going to save you, I'm not going to save you. You get to go to heaven, you're stuck in hell. How is that fair? Paul's going to come at that question a few different ways. It's sort of a multi-layered question, right? There's dimensions to that. So there are several layers, several aspects to his answer. Is God unrighteous? Is he wicked? Is he wrong? That was the question in, in verse 14. Paul says, absolutely not. Okay, Paul, why not? Explain this to us. Well, to begin with, Paul says, verse 15, it's the wrong question. God's not wrong. You're wrong. You're, answering, you're, you're asking the wrong question. For he says to Moses, this is Exodus 33, 19, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. Verse 15, Paul just threw it back to his readers. He says, you're, you're, you're essentially asking, how can a kind and loving God send anybody to hell? Okay, we all know the answer to that, right? Does God send anybody to hell? No. What happens? We rebel, we sin, we do evil, evil wicked stuff, and we send ourselves to hell. When we disobey God, we separate ourselves from him. When we commit crimes against an eternal God or when we do wrong against an eternal soul made in the image of God, that eternal crime deserves eternal punishment. That's Paul's whole point in the opening chapters of the letter, right? First three chapters all boil down to we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and deserve hell. So the question isn't why does God send anybody to hell? That's not a mystery. It's not even really a question. The better question, Paul continues, the question you should be asking, Paul says, is why does God rescue anybody from hell? Not why is anybody there. Why isn't everybody there? Why does God offer anyone deserving of hell a second chance? Because it's not like anybody deserves a second chance. And, Paul says, verse 16, it's not like we can do anything to earn a second chance. It's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's not about us, it's about him. It's not a question of our works or our willpower. We're saved by grace through faith, right? So it's never a question of God's justice being administered unequally. Well, I think you deserve this, I think you don't deserve it. No, it's never a question of God's justice. It's always a function of his mercy. But that's the problem right there, says Paul's debate partner. That's the problem. This is God picking and choosing. No, Paul continues in verse 17. It's not that simple. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, 
This is Exodus 9.16. For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Paul's pointing out that we're not confused about why Pharaoh wasn't saved. The Bible tells us why Pharaoh wasn't saved. He was wicked, he was cruel, he was hard-hearted. In spite of God's repeated warnings, in spite of God saying, take the next exit, get off when you can't turn around, he stubbornly, Pharaoh stubbornly persisted in pursuing evil rather than repenting of sin. He was not interested in God's mercy. So eventually God says, fine. If that's the inclination of your heart, if that's the direction you're determined to go, I'm going to let you go there. I'm going to stop fighting. I'll even help you go there. If if you've decided that's what you want, I'm not going to stand in your way. But understand, what you've said that you want is me as your enemy. And I'm not going to be responsible for the consequences. I'm not going to force you to do anything, God says. You can repent. You can persist in your sin. You get to choose. But once you have, I'm going to use your choice, either way, to glorify my name. God's going to be glorified. We get to choose. Do we meet him in his mercy or do we meet him in his wrath? Pharaoh chose wrath. There's nothing unrighteous about God following through. And by the way, it works. God was glorified when he poured down his wrath on Pharaoh and on Egypt. The story of God's wrath against Pharaoh spreads throughout the whole known world. Forty years later, when Joshua and Caleb lead the children of Israel into the promised land, the Canaanites are still freaking out. We've heard about your God. We've heard about the God of Israel and what he did to Egypt. God was glorified in his wrath. A thousand years later, God's glory is still still resounding. More than a thousand years later, Isaiah and virtually all of the prophets are still using Exodus, the, the Exodus as a standard when they want to talk about God's might, God's majesty. And God, who is mighty to save, they go back consistently and they say, remember Egypt. Remember what God did. So let's summarize what Paul has said so far. Is God unrighteous for sending people to hell? No. A, it's the wrong question. God doesn't send anyone to hell because we all deserve his justice. B, the right question is why does he rescue anyone from hell? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one deserves to be rescued. C, we can't do anything about it on our own. No one can beg or bribe or work or wish their way out. The only way out is through God's mercy. But his mercy to one doesn't change the status of another. His mercy to one doesn't mean that the other didn't deserve to be there. D, no one's in hell unrighteously. We've all chosen sin. We've all chosen to rebel, and no one escapes it unwillingly. God doesn't save anybody against their will. Salvation is a gift. You can't force a gift on someone. It has to be accepted. If some reject it, that's not on God. That's not unrighteous. Last bullet point, it's a question of how each of us chooses to meet our creator, in his mercy or in his wrath. If we choose his wrath, and if he uses that wrath, if he uses our life as a cautionary tale to others, that's not on him, that's on us. That's it, Paul says. Verse 18, God has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You might not like it, but it's not unrighteous. 
Isn't it though? Paul knows at least some of his readers aren't going to be persuaded. So he keeps going, verse 19. He anticipates yet another question. You'll say to me then, Paul knows his readers will say to him, why does he, God, still find fault for who has resisted his will? You're ducking the question, Paul. God is God. If he wanted everyone to be saved, everyone would be saved. So how is that not unfair? Why can't I blame God for rescuing some while leaving others hardened against him? Verse 20, Paul answers. And his first answer isn't really an answer, it's just a reply. Verse 20, Paul says, you remember who we're talking about, don't you? You know we're talking about God. Indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Paul's asking, do you really think it's our place as the creation to question the creator? Especially, do you think it's okay to be snotty about it? He's not answering the question. He's just saying, hey, have the right tone when you ask the question. Verse 21, he answers the question. And he does it by borrowing an illustration that shows up in both Isaiah and Jeremiah. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Don't you get it, Paul's asking? You're still thinking that salvation is something that at least some people deserve. You've already forgotten the whole beginning of this letter. You've forgotten things like Romans 3.11. There's no one, no one, who seeks after God. There's no one who deserves favor from God. We're not entitled to anything. I kind of wish that Paul could speak to some of the youth in our country today. We're not entitled to anything. Okay, rabbit trail. <laughs> Genesis 2.7. Genesis 2-7, God made us out of dust, made us out of clay, as it were. That's Paul's, that's Paul's metaphor, so let's go with that. God took clay, shaped it in his image, said, follow me. We said no, and jumped out of God's hands. God said, follow me. We said no, we're going to go our own way. We jumped out of God's hands. We landed as a big old lump on the floor. We chose the floor. Think about that, Paul says. We were safe in the potter's hands. We could have stayed there forever. But the floor looked better. The floor is what we wanted, so the floor is what we got. The floor is what we deserve. We deserve the floor. What would be fair and just and righteous would be leaving us on the floor. Potter's under no obligation to pick up a stubborn piece of clay and try again. Leaving us on the floor, any of us, would be perfectly fair. But if the potter does decide to reach down and pick up a, a hunk of clay and say, do you want to give it another try? Will you let me make you into a vase? I promise you it's going to be beautiful. If the potter does that, and if the clay cooperates, that's still not just or unjust. That's still not fair or unfair. All it is is merciful. All it is is grace. See, your question, Paul says to his reader, your borderline accusation is, is God being unfair by picking up some clay, by offering some clay a second chance while leaving other clay behind? The answer is yeah, but not in the way that you think. God's being unfair, but he's not being unfair to the clay that's still on the floor. 
The clay on the floor deserves to be on the floor. It's entirely fair to leave any of the clay, to leave all of the clay right where it chose to be. If God chose again, chooses to try again with some of the clay, he's not being unfair to the clay that ends up on the scrap heap. He's being unfair to the clay that gets a second chance. Unfair in the sense of more than fair. In the sense of not giving it what is fair, giving it mercy rather than what's fair. And this is where we've got to pause. This is where we have to pause and remind ourselves, what's Paul's bigger point? Everything he's saying, he's saying in service of a bigger point. How did this conversation start? Paul imagining his readers saying, how about Israel? It's unfair what's happened to Israel. It's unfair what God has done to Israel. Paul's answer so far, Paul's answer is, no, it's not. God can give mercy to anyone he wants to give mercy to without being wicked. God can minister grace how he sees fit, and that doesn't make him unrighteous. But, stay with me here. We're going to turn a corner. Hang on to something. Brace yourself. But, Paul says, verse 22, that's not actually your question. What about Israel? That's not your real issue. Let's talk about what we should be talking about because it isn't really fair and unfair. The issue isn't God giving grace. The issue is who's receiving grace. Paul knows that this question comes from a heart that isn't concerned with God giving grace to sinners, but is very concerned with whether God should be extending grace to Gentiles. Verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy? What if God wanted to do that? The vessels of his mercy which he'd prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. That's a dirty word to the Jews in Paul's day. Even believing Jews were still getting used to the idea. You mean the Gentiles can get saved? Without becoming Jewish first? Notice just in passing, Paul doesn't say God does prepare some vessels for wrath. It doesn't say, Paul is not saying that God does preordain some people for grace and others for wrath. Verse 22, he's asking a hypothetical. He's saying, what if he did? He gets to, he's God, he can do what he wants. But as it is, he doesn't. God doesn't prepare or preordain anyone for destruction. We sin, and in sinning, we prepare ourselves for destruction. We choose destruction, and God rescues some of us from destruction. But here's where Paul is going. He's saying to his Jewish readers specifically, hey, you didn't mind that. See, he's getting to his point. Verse 22 to 24, he says, you didn't mind that, you didn't object to that, you had zero problem with that when we were the ones being picked up the floor, off, off the floor and put back on the wheel. He thought it was great when God said, I'm going to call out of Abraham a people unto myself. 
You thought it was fantastic that we had a chance at salvation while the Gentiles were the ones being tossed into the scrap bucket. You didn't have a problem, verse 23, when the Jews were the vessels of glory and the Gentiles, verse 22, were the vessels of wrath. You thought it was great when we were God's chosen people and the Gentiles were just kindling to stoke the fires in hell. That was good with you. Why can't God do for the Gentiles what he did for us? Because that's what he's doing. Verse 24, Paul says, the tables have turned. The vessels of honor will come not for the Jews only, in fact, not from the Jews mostly, but from the Gentiles. How does that make sense? Because God loves to restore. He's a God of second chances. He loves to fix broken things. And Paul continues, he says, look, guys, it's the, he's done it before. Verse 25, as he says also in Hosea, I'll call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Don't get confused. Because, because in context, God is telling Hosea, the Jewish people, specifically the ten northern tribes, rebelled against me. They stopped being my people, but it won't be forever. One day I will restore them, one day when Jesus returns. That's what God is saying to Hosea in context. I'm going to reach out and take the vessels of wrath and make them vessels of glory. Paul's quoting this to make an application. He's citing this to say to his readers up in Rome, this is what God does. This is who God is. He rescues and restores, and right now this is what God is doing. He's taking the Gentiles, the people who didn't believe, people who weren't God's people, and he's asking, hey, do you want to be? Because I sent my son to die, and you can be. For 2,000 years, Paul is saying, God was picking Jewish lumps of clay up off the floor. Now during this season, God is saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to pick up Gentile lumps of clay. I'm going to ask those Gentile lumps, do you want to try again? Are you willing to repent to me, my people? Can I make a beautiful vase out of you? And Paul's question back to the questioner. His, his, his query back to the to thorn in his side up in Rome. Do you really begrudge the, the Gentiles that opportunity? Do you really think it's unrighteous for God to give them the same chance that we had? Especially, Paul's not done, especially knowing the Jews are going to have another chance eventually? Especially knowing God's not done with Israel? God promised Hosea, the verse we just read, he promised Hosea he would restore Israel, he promised the same thing through Isaiah. He promises the same thing through virtually every prophet. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. What about Israel, you're asking? Paul says there will be a day that God turns his attention back to Israel. His word hasn't failed. His plan hasn't failed. He's going to preserve and protect a remnant, and it's to that remnant that God will keep his promises. Just hang on. And, and even that, Paul reminds his Jewish reader, even that is grace. This is cool. Verse 29, Isaiah said, Before, unless the Lord had left us a seed, we would have been like Sodom 
we would have been made like Gomorrah. Just like God didn't need to give even one Gentile a second chance, he didn't need to give Israel a second chance. His justice doesn't demand it. Israel doesn't deserve it. God is not obligated by anything to give it other than his character. Other than his determination to keep his own promise, a promise that was itself grace. If not for grace, Israel wouldn't have existed. Abraham didn't deserve to be called out of his father's house. And if not for God's grace, Israel wouldn't exist today. Wouldn't have existed in Paul's day, certainly wouldn't exist in our day. If not for God's grace, Israel would have been utterly destroyed when they rejected her Messiah. Look at Sodom and Gomorrah, Paul says. This is his point. If Sodom and Gomorrah were deserving of destruction, how much more so the people who handed over the Redeemer of humanity to be crucified? But scratch at this. This is cool. But think back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Think back to Genesis 18 when God and Abraham are having a conversation specifically about Sodom. You remember the conversation. Abraham says, what if I can find 50 righteous people? What if I can find 40? What if I can find 20? What if I can find 10 righteous people in Sodom? Will you spare the city? And God says, it's a deal. Find me 10 righteous people and I won't destroy it for the sake of those 10. Only found four, so Sodom ends up an ash heap. But that's not the point. Get the reference Paul is making. Where there's a faithful remnant, a believing remnant, a worshipful remnant, God delights in showing grace. What is Paul telling us God is doing? Even as he's bringing salvation to the Gentiles over here, he's still calling out a remnant from Israel. He says Israel has been blinded in part, in large part, but not entirely. God is still raising up a remnant, preserving and protecting a remnant, still having grace upon that remnant. So when the church age is over, because of God's grace, there will still be an Israel to call on his name. Because of God's grace, there'll still be an Israel for Jesus to return to. Because of God's grace, there will still be an Israel for God to keep his promises to. Because of God's grace. Yeah, during this season, Paul says, God is being unfair to the Gentiles. He's lavishing grace upon them that is unfair. More than fair. But don't, don't despair, he says to his fellow Jews. It's going to be Israel's turn again. One day God will be more than fair to Israel. More gracious, more merciful, more abounding in loving kindness than he's ever been to anybody ever. And his grace is already working to make that happen. Paul's going to go on from here. He's going to talk more about Israel. He's going to talk about God's promises to Israel, his plan for Israel. But, but let, let's, just, let's pause here this morning. Let's just ponder what Paul has said. We, we, we had to chip and chisel a little bit today to get to it. We had to dig and sift to, to grasp it. But having done the work, it's really comes, it, it really comes down to one thing. It really is, his point is really profoundly simple. It's grace. Grace. God could have left us sitting as a lump on the floor. When we wrestled ourselves out of the potter's hands and threw ourselves down in a heap, God had no obligation to pick us up. Could have sent us straight to the dump. 
could have kind of hollowed us out and used it as a, as a trash receptacle, could have used us as a toilet. And when we were full of, of uncleanness, he could have sent us then to the trash pile or straight to the burn pit. And it would have been nothing but fair. And if God, while he was doing that, had picked up some clay next to us and said, hey, you want to be a vase? If he'd gone across the room and said, I've got plans for you, I'm going to turn you into a pitcher, we would still be getting what was fair. They wouldn't be getting what was fair. They'd be getting grace. But even on the scrap heap, we would be getting what was fair and God would still be righteous in what he was doing. But that isn't what God has done. Instead, God has been unfair to us too. More than fair to us. He didn't leave us on the scrap pile. He sent his son to die in our place. He's blessed us. He's given us a second chance. And right now, for those of us who have said yes to Jesus, Jesus said, hey, let's make a deal. You give me your sin, I'll give you my righteousness. For anyone who said yes to this, right now, God is making something beautiful out of you. That has nothing to do with fair. That's deeply, profoundly unfair. It is so much more than fair, you can't even see fair from where we are. Do we, do we get that? I'm not, I, I'm not sure we always do. We said last week, from the dawn of humanity, God has been choosing people to choose him. Somehow we always manage to make that about us. God is choosing people like me to choose him. God chose me because I'm great. He recognized what a great prospect I was. He wanted me on his team. Or, I'm great because I chose him. I was smart enough. I was discerning enough. I was perceptive enough. I accepted the gospel. I'm really quite something. I, I fall into that sometimes. My pride, my pride desperately wants to believe things like that. I don't think I'm the only one. In, 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 in fact, it's a, it's a very human thing. Helicopter up and look at the big picture from, from this morning. See the pattern. Paul's originally addressing Jews who are all indignant. We're God's chosen people. He can't love the Gentiles. Why not? Because he loves us. That was then. Today, today, our day, there's a huge segment of the church that's doing the exact same thing in reverse. God can't love Israel. Not anymore, not ever again. Why not? Because he loves us. And Paul is saying to Jew and Gentile, don't you get it? I mean, he's pleading. At the end of the day, it isn't about, salvation isn't about being Jewish or being a Gentile. It's about grace. It's not about us versus them. It's about him. Wow, we said last week, how great is God's mercy. He even forgives Israel. God, how beautiful is the grace that lets the blood Israel spilled be the blood that covers Israel's sin. That should leave us in awe. What it shouldn't do is make us feel superior because that grace is no different than the grace my sin requires. God's mercy on Israel is no greater than the mercy that you've received or I've received. We were just as far from God. We were just as lost in our sin. We were just as destined for destruction. 
We weren't clever because we saw what Israel didn't. Pin a medal on us. No, we're blessed is what we are. Because this is how God planned it. That we would have this turn to be picked up off the floor. That we would have this second chance to follow God. To be treated more than fairly, better than fairly by his grace. Life is unfair. I mean, there's no getting around it. Some have cancer. Some are never sick a day in their life. Some are rich. Some go to bed hungry. Some seem to have opportunity after opportunity. Everything they touch turns to gold. Some face tragedy after tragedy. Life is unfair. And, 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 and so we want to blame God, the God who gave us life. We want to blame the one who brought us into this life and, and, and say it, it's unfair because you're unfair. And God is unfair, but not the way we think. The unfairness of the world is on us. All of the sin and injustice in the world is in the world because we brought it into the world. God isn't unfair because the world is unfair. God is unfair in that he overrides fairness with grace. He forgives our sin. He pays for our wickedness. He rescues us out of the world. He is so much more than fair to those who call upon his name. The only sense in which God has treated any of us unfairly is lavishing us with grace that we do not deserve. And we need to celebrate that every day. We need, we need to rejoice in that every hour. We need to praise God for that every moment. Because if we don't, we're going to forget it. If we're not remembering grace, our pride is going to assert itself and we're going to go back to thinking it's about us somehow. God made a good move saving me. I was smart enough to choose God. When that happens, when we think that it's about us and not about him, when, when we start thinking we are who we are, we are where we are because of something, anything other than grace, well, well for one thing, the word gets a lot smaller. God's word gets, gets tiny. It gets diminutive. Why? Well, it's less important because of what does it have to tell us? The Bible is a redemption story. But if the redemption story is all about me, then hey, just look at me. The story's right here. God's word gets smaller. Because we think it's all about us. So we don't need to learn about him. When we forget grace, worship gets weaker. Because our awe fades away. Amazing grace becomes amazing choice. Oh God, you made when you saved a star like me. Jesus says, of course he does. Have you met me? Why wouldn't he save me? I'm great. When we forget grace, the word gets smaller, our worship gets weaker, the world seems stronger. Because as grace fades and God fades, what's left? Circumstances, trials. When we stop being amazed that God made us his children, we start being frustrated at what God lets happen to his children. And suddenly everything seems cosmically unfair and the way that God is running the world is altogether bad. What's the remedy? Three things as we wrap up. 
The first is let the Word show us grace every day. Every day, see grace in God's Word. Let the, let the eternal truth, the living Word, speak grace into our hearts. For, for a long time, people would ask me, how long should I spend with God in His Word every day? And my answer for a long time has been, sit with God until you hear from Him. Sit in His Word until you know that you've met with Him. But it occurs to me that that leaves something out. It's also important to sit in God's Word until you've seen Him. His majesty and His might and His grace. Our Murray McShane had a list. He's a Scottish pastor from the last century. He had a list of things that he would go into God's Word looking for. Is there a sin I need to repent of? A spiritual discipline I should pursue? Is there a choice that God is urging me to make? And I would add something to that list. Do I see God who is worthy of our praise? And that's the second thing. Let worship show us God's grace. Let worship change us by God's continuing Grace. Worship has got to be something that's not just weekly, but daily. And, and, and not only a song. Worship is, is more than singing. I think we have a song that says worship is more than a song, which is ironic. <laughs> singing, singing praise is good, but, but expand the boundaries of what that means. You can, you can sing praise to the Lord with music that's different than we sing here. You can sing praise to the Lord with no music, with a song that just that springs forth out of your heart. You can worship the Lord with no music, but in prayer, pondering, de- declaring back to the Lord His majesty, His grace. I'm not good with words. You know who is? David. Great with words. Grab Psalms. Pray in the first person. God, this is who you say I am. This is who you say you are. And this is, this is you telling me I am who I am because of who you are. When we do that consistently, faithfully, let the Word show us God's grace, worship God for His grace, the world, instead of being a cosmic downer, becomes an encouragement. Because if we go into the Word, uh, go into the Word, world, having sat with God in his word, having worshipped him for who he is, we look at the world and it's not about us anymore. And it's not about what's happening to us anymore. And it's not about our pain or our problems or our family or our feelings anymore. It's about him. And it's about them. world is a mess, but I'm going to see Jesus. I'm going to be with Jesus when he puts it back together. Because grace. My body is falling apart. But there's a new body coming. It's already on order. Because grace. People hurt me. But Jesus is never going to leave me or forsake me. He's closer than a brother and always will be. Because grace. Life didn't turn out the way that I hoped or expected. But eternal life is coming. Eternal life where the worst thing is better than the best thing in this life. Because grace. It's just not fair. And I'm so glad it's more than fair because of grace. We can go into the world declaring that. We can go into the world telling people that because we're believing it, abiding in it, rejoicing in it. Father, thank you.
that you didn't leave us on the floor to crack and dry and get thrown away, tossed into the burn pile. Thank you that you came for us. Thank you for the second chance you've offered us. Thank you for this age of grace where the Spirit says, come. Where the Father says, come. Where the Son says, come. Thank you for the grace that we found at the cross. Thank you that it's inexhaustible. Thank you that it's undeniable. Thank you that when we, when we look for it, it's always there. When we trust in it, it's always enough. And we worship you, God of grace.